continuing our sermon from last week, uh, we, we made it through the first point, at least, uh, and, and then there's only two points, but uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, I want to read it and then we'll um, do a little bit of review from last week and then pick back up in the rest of the passage. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. The title of this sermon is Seeking the Things Above, part two. This is, again, continuing from last week. And my desire for you, dear saints, is that you would prize Christ above all else. Now, it's no secret that... Anything that's good is worth waiting for. Your favorite coffee, waiting for that slow pour-over drip, if you know what I'm talking about. If you know, you know. Uh, Those fresh-baked cookies, true love. These are things worth waiting for. Now, while these things might be trivial, especially the coffee and the cookies, um, they do, however, prove a reality that the things that we are willing to wait for are usually the same things that we highly prize and value, as well as things that we enjoy and find great delight in. In this passage... God describes the Christian's life in Christ as one of waiting. And he describes it as seeking the things above. So living on this earth, but waiting and seeking and setting our gaze upon the life to come and and the things of heaven where Christ is. Now, while we live in, in this in-between state, that's, that's what some people call it, the already, the not yet, uh, where we already have eternal life, but we are not yet fully experiencing all that eternal life is. We're in this already not yet in-between waiting time of life. Now, while we wait, he gives us a very clear command. Keep seeking the things above. And he says it in a different way. In verse 2, set your mind on the things above. So while we wait, what we do is we fight to have a mind that is directed to Christ and we fight to have a life that is defined by Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That our mind is fixated upon Him. Both our our desire and our pursuit of our heart and also the preoccupation of the thoughts and contemplations of our mind. What we dwell on, what we think about, is Him. And we are also to have a life that's defined by Christ. Now, we're not commanded to have a life defined by Christ. Rather, he tells us that we do have a life defined by Christ. The struggle, the fight, is for that to shine through or to show through. For it to be evident that our very lives are defined by him. Now, just by way of review from last week. The first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2 is that we are to have a mind directed to Christ. That's what it means to seek the things above and to wait on this earth for the coming of Christ. 
Paul focused there in the first two verses on the life of the inner man. And uh, it's, it's likened to how the moon in the sky controls and has a great influence on the tides of the sea. When there's a full moon or a new moon or anything else in between, the tides of the ocean are affected in direct proportion to the gravitational pull of the moon. So also is Christ to the soul of the believer. That uh, Christ controls the ebb and flow of our souls. And this is seen in the fact that we are to keep seeking the things above. That is, we are called as Christians to pursue the ways of Christ, to have a desire, a longing for the person of Christ, that relationship, and, and to chase after the priorities of Christ. That we are to seek His glory and, and to want what He wants, to pursue what He pursues. The idea in keep seeking the things above is that, Christian, you are called to, as it were, reach into heaven and lay hold of the chief delight of that place, which is Christ himself. And you are to, as it were, draw him from heaven into this earth, into your heart. That is, you are to, to enjoy today what is, in, as described here, the things above. You are to, and you are able to, delight in and, and, and experience and, and, and uh, enjoy heaven while still here on this earth. How is that possible? Well, it's, it's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he indwells the believer, and he indwells every believer, a key aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that he is a communicator. That is, he is that connection point, that conduit, that link between us and Christ himself. That as we read the word, sing his praises, fellowship with his saints, worship him, live for him in obedience. As we do all of these things, what it means to be a Christian, we see and experience more and more of Christ as we obey the Spirit. And what happens in the Christian life is he becomes more and more the supreme and all-satisfying delight of the Christian. He gets sweeter and sweeter as life goes on, doesn't he, dear saint? You know, you might have a favorite song or your favorite movie. And there's always that question, if you could bring a book or bring a movie to a deserted island, if you just had one, what would it be? You know, and maybe it's Two Towers, maybe it's uh, A New Hope. Or maybe it's, uh, I don't know, Legally Blonde. Who knows what it is for you? But the reality is, no matter how many times you watch your favorite movie, if you watch it all day, every day, there will come a point when it's not your favorite movie anymore. Especially on, on if, it's a, if, there, if it's a song instead of a movie. Songs get played out, right? It's not that way with Christ. The more that you have of Christ, the more you want more of Christ. It's, it's a miraculous work of, of, of God in our hearts, isn't it? That's why John Owen tells us that what you need to do, if you're not enjoying Christ, if, 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 if he's not sweet to you right now, dear Christian, what you need to do, is not go somewhere else and try and work up a, an appetite for Jesus. You just need to partake of him. You just got to do the work, Christian, and get in the word and seek Christ there. 
Behold him in his scriptures. That's your duty. And then John Owen says what's going to happen. As you just do it, and by God's grace you do, as you do that, then what will happen is he will renew your mind. And he will freshen those, as it were, those spiritual taste buds. And he will transform you so that I actually want to read now. And a day goes by where you don't, and you're not right. Something's not right in your heart. Why? Well, I haven't sat at the feet of Christ yet. So Christian, your duty is to keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Now he describes him, this Christ, as seated at the right hand of God. And it's glorious to think about that we, we looked last week at um, uh, four things, uh, a number of things um, that are, are the significance of him being seated at the right hand of God. The fact that Christ is seated at God's right hand tells us that, well, first of all, his atonement for our sins and his payment for our guilt is finished. So he sat down. His work was done. He said on the cross, what? It is finished. And he meant it. He tells no lie. Our Lord cannot lie, can he? And so when he said it's finished, Christian, it was finished. You no longer have to pay for your sin. You just simply point to the payment. The fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God on high also tell us, tells us that this Christ has been given the highest position of honor over all things. There's no higher position than the right hand of God on high. There, there's no greater honor that can be bestowed upon somebody. We have all of our award shows and all of our accolades and all of the uh, merits of society in this world, whether it's an Oscar or a Tony or a Grammy or whether it's a Nobel Prize or anything else, there are so many ways of honoring people in this world. There's no higher way of honoring somebody than to seat them at the right hand of God. And only Christ is honored in that way. So he is set apart as the one deserving of all supreme honor and reverence. Not only that, but the fact that he's at the right hand of God tells us that God the Father delights in his dear son. That he doesn't say, okay, good job, now here's another job I got for you. It's on the other side of heaven, or as it were, or it's go back to earth and do this other thing. No, as soon as Christ was done, the Father told him, sit here at my right hand until I make the, your enemies a footstool for your feet. Amen. The idea is don't go far from me. I'm going, I have honored you by seating you at my right hand and I will honor you still more by giving you more and more victory over your enemies. Amen. And uh, dear saint, you are part of that victory Amen. because Christ conquered you, didn't he? And you willingly sit under his feet. You willingly bow before him and serve him. But the father takes great delight in his son. And he said, come here and, and, and be near to me, my son. And uh, the, the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of God on high is also a comfort to you, dear saint, because Christ there at God's right hand is right now interceding on your behalf. And that though you sin and though you fail, He still bears the marks of His sacrifice. He is the ongoing proof that God can still love you and not compromise His holiness. So Christ is there, seated at the right hand of God. And so the, the command in verse 2 is, set your mind on Him. 
Set your mind on him. Think about him. Like the song that we sang earlier, I want to know you, and then I want to know you more. Don't be satisfied with knowing what you know about Jesus. Want to know more. Trust me, there's more to be known. You can talk to somebody who has been a saint, been a, 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 been a Christian, been a pastor for decades and near the end of their life and they would still tell you, oh, there's, I haven't found the bottom of him yet. I haven't found the edges of the glory of Christ yet. Christian, you have been given the wonderful opportunity to to walk the landscape of, it says in Ephesians, to walk the land of the love of God. That you would come to find out that, that neither height nor depth nor width nor breadth can contain and describe the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. It's your privilege to, as it were, go on this unending hike or journey as a Christian to explore how far the love of God goes. And I promise you, you will not find the end of it. So you must fixate your thoughts on Christ and give careful thought and consideration to the commands of Christ, to the work of Christ, to the glory of Christ. That's what it means to set your mind on the things above. Now, to seek the things above is to have a heart and a mind that is directed towards Christ, but it is also, it also means that your life here on this earth is a life that is defined by Christ. So that's our second point this morning. A life defined by Christ. Verse 3 and 4, just to refresh it in our minds. It says, for you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Now here, Paul is really elaborating, and I alluded to this uh, a few weeks ago, as if you remember that. I barely do. Uh, Paul elaborates on a little phrase that he said in chapter 2, verse 20. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, nor taste, nor, nor touch. There's that little phrase in there in the middle of that of verse 20. As if you were living in the world. And I mentioned that we brush past that phrase, but if we stop and think, logic tells us, Paul, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are living in this world. What do you mean as if you lived in this world? Well, he comes back to that thought here in these two verses. He says, first of all, you died. You died. So why not set your mind on the things that are on earth? Why am I in this world but not really living in this world? Well, because you died. You have already died to the things that are on earth, he says. That is, that old you along with your old mind, has died. Ephesians 4 describes our past as, uh, in, in these words, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. That is the spiritual state of every unbeliever. 
a futile mind, that is, vain thinking, darkened mind, that is, no direction, alienated from the life of God, that is, a stranger to God Himself, ignorant, that is, unlearned, untaught by God, and hard-hearted, that is, unwilling to be taught by God. That is the old you, Christian. And praise God that you no longer are subject to this state of having a futile mind, a darkened mind, alienated from the life of God, ignorant and hard-hearted. Now, we can look like that, can't we? We can drift into those and, and, start to, and start to take on those old characteristics again, can't we? But that's not us. That's not you. The reality is that you don't have a futile mind. You've been given the mind of Christ. Your mind is not dark. You have the, the light of God has shone into your hearts. You are not alienated from the life of God, but you are his friend and his child. You're not ignorant to the things of God because you have been taught by God. And you are not hard-hearted because God has given you a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that loves him. You died. That old you is gone. And so all the stuff, all of the pursuits of that old life ought also to be a thing of the past, dear child of God. You have died. But not only have you died, but now you have been given life. And he says, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Now what's interesting is that the same word hidden here is used in chapter 1, verse 26, and chapter 2, verse 3. Let's look at those and learn about what this word hidden means. What better place to go to define this term but uh, the same book written by the same author. If he's consistent in his use of a word, then we can look at the other uses and, and, and it sheds light on our passage. Colossians 1, 26, he says, that is uh, the mystery that he's talking about, the gospel, the word of God preached, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So it's the same word, hidden, there. Talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it was hidden in times past. In the Old Testament, there was no uh, cross, no Jesus yet. It was all future still in the Old Testament. It was hidden for a time. And when Christ came, it was manifested. The gospel and the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was manifested for all to see. And then again, in chapter 2, verse 3, he uses the word again. Speaking about Christ himself, he says in chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What does that mean? Well, if we take both of these two passages together... What we learn is that uh, just because something is hidden doesn't make it not real or not true, right? Just like the gospel and Jesus Christ and the coming Messiah and the fullness of salvation in the new covenant. That was hidden in the Old Testament, but just because it was hidden in the Old Testament doesn't make it not real or not true. It was always part of the plan. It was just not revealed yet. Also, what we learn from this, this in, in chapter 2, verse 3, what we learn about the word hidden is uh, just because it's hidden 
doesn't mean it is not uh, accessible or available to us. Because in Christ, all uh, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. That doesn't mean wisdom and knowledge are in Christ and you can't have any. It's not what it means. What he means there, what he's saying is, if you want wisdom and knowledge, you go to Christ because that's where it's hidden. You see. So, this word hidden, when back in our passage, you have died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Your life, Christian, your new life, that life that you live in the power of God, that eternal life, that how, how you have been raised with Christ from the grave, how you have been given a new heart, that, that new life that you have, it is, it is a reality, but it's, in some sense, an unseen reality. Just because it's hidden, just because your life is hidden, doesn't mean that there is no life there. It doesn't nullify its reality. And just because your life is hidden with Christ, it doesn't mean that it's something future that you can't have yet. You see, if you are a believer, you have life. And it's hidden with Christ. So again, just because something is hidden, that doesn't make it not true or not real. I mean, think about it. You have a complete solar eclipse. The sun doesn't cease to exist. It's just what? Hidden. hidden. The sun's still there. It didn't go anywhere. It's just hidden for a moment. See? When the sun sets, it doesn't just vanish it's still there it's just on the other side of the earth we just can't see it so christians so you also your life you have an eternal life you have a glorious and a blessed life in christ that life is rich in spiritual treasures and it is a life that is sure it is a life that is unshakable. Ephesians 2 says that God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's stunning about this is this life is yours and you're not really living on this earth. This, he's explaining that little phrase from chapter 2, verse 20, as if you were living in this world. What do you mean? Well, my life doesn't find its origin or its, its uh, primary uh, sphere of, of, uh, of generation, you could say, in this world. My life is hidden with Christ. Wait, where's Christ? Remember, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. It's striking that he uses the word with. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. He could have said your life is hidden in Christ, and, but, but he's talking about location here as well. I believe he wants to get across this location dynamic because of what he said in chapter 2, verse 20, because of what he said in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, your life is with Christ. It's hidden with Christ. Where is Christ? He is above. He's not in this world. He is seated 
at the right hand of God. And your life is there with Him at the right hand of God. Your identity is wrapped up in Christ. Your life is defined by Him. Why? Because it's with Him there. You could say, you know, uh, when, when somebody leaves you for a time, maybe uh, it's a loved one that has to go off to college or to some military venture or to some other obligation, a business trip or anything else. Uh, if you love that person, you say, my heart is with you. I go with you, right? It's the same idea here. Our heart, our life is with him. And though I'm here, it's, 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 it's like... I'm, I'm still there with him and I want to be with him and it's not whole until I'm there. Until I'm reunited with Christ. So Christian, your life is real. This life that you live, this eternal spiritual life that you have now is something that you can access and that you experience and enjoy now in this earth. Though, it doesn't come from this earth because it's hidden with Christ in God. Now, because it's hidden with Christ in God, the surety and the, and the position uh, of your life is linked to his surety and position in heaven. All that it means for Christ to be seated at the right hand of God, that, that the work is done, that he's given a place of honor, that there is a closeness and, and affection between the Father and the Son, all of those realities we benefit from. So our, our eternal life is secure because he sat down. Our eternal life that we live on this earth even now is a life uh, that is, is held in honor by God. He, he loves us and wants to bless us. Uh, because we are in Christ. After all, Ephesians 2 says he, he's, that God seated us with him. So we are with him there, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, not equal with, with Christ, of course, but inheriting his honor. His honor is our, our, is our honor. We, we benefit from that because we are so closely tied to him. And also the belovedness between the Father and the Son that he says, come here and be at my right hand. Our life is there. And there is this closeness, this affection between the same closeness and affection that is between the Father and the Son is towards you now. You benefit from that, Christian. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's there. And nothing can change that. Now the next verse, verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Now once again, he, he, he puts in this little phrase in the middle of, the, of a sentence that's just so loaded. I want to unload that, as it were, uh, here for us. There's the little phrase, Christ who is our life. Not only is your life hidden with Christ in God, Christ is your life. That's what it means for your life to be, uh, your, your identity to be in Christ. He's your primary identity. Now, what does this mean? Christ who is our life. Six ways. Six ways where Christ is our life. And we'll go through these rather quickly. Because we, we got to get to the, the glory of the coming of Christ here that's in this passage. So first of all, uh, Christ is the source of your life. He's the source of your life. That's what it means for Christ to be your life means. Christ is the source. John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. Uh, and and the, the primary source um, of this life is in the work of Christ on the cross. If you look at Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14, just, just right above our passage, it says, And you, being dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. There's that life, right? 
You are alive with Christ. How did that happen? Well, he backtracks. First, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. Well, how did he do that? How, on what grounds did he forgive us? Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. That's how he was able to graciously forgive you because he canceled your debt uh, against you. Well, how did he cancel my debt against me? He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So if you track it back, Christ nailed to the cross was the nailing of our debt to the cross. And in doing so, our debt was canceled towards God. And because our debt was canceled by Christ on the cross, God is now able to freely and graciously forgive us of all of our sins. And because we are forgiven, now he can give us life. So it all comes from Christ, you see. So Christ is the source of our life. But also, secondly, Christ is the sustainer of our life. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do what? Nothing. You can't do anything, Christian without Christ sustaining you, without being connected to him in vital communion of soul. So he sustains your your life. Thirdly, he's the model of our life. Romans 8.29 says that we were predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So the reason God set his love upon you was so that you would look like Jesus. He's your model. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So as you look to Christ and behold him in the pages of scripture, you are transformed by beholding him. And you begin to fit the mold, fit the model of Christ himself. Fourthly, Christ is the purpose of your life. He's the purpose of your life or summation of your life. Colossians 1.16 says, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Why do you exist? For him. Ephesians 1.10 says, uh, describing the fullness of times, He says, what is the fullness of times? That is the summation of all things in Christ. If if you add up all of history over here on this side of of an equal sign, if if you have uh, uh, creation plus Old Testament Israel plus Rome plus America plus Greece plus uh, what's happening in the Middle East plus... Russia, plus everything, plus all of your struggles and all of your life. If you add all of that up, what's on the other side? What is it all about? It's Christ himself. He is the summation of all things. So Christian, personally for you, that means he is the purpose and and the summation of your life. That's what it means, Christ is our life. Fifthly, Christ is the crown of your life. He's the crown of your life, that, or, or the glory of your life. That is, he, he is what makes it good, makes life worth living. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And later on in Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He's your crown, Christian. 
If you have nothing else, if you can just have him as your crown, as the glory of what it means to be alive, if your life is defined by him, it's a life worth living. You, you know, in, in the last three years, there has been this spike of suicide and even suicidal thoughts. And I don't know what's going on in your life. But if you have Christ in your life, no matter what happens, it's still worth living. Because he's the crown of your life. And sometimes he needs to strip away all those other things to get you to that point where I have nothing but Christ. And then finally there, when you're at your lowest, as it were, that's when you find, oh, I have everything I need, actually. And all these other things are other extra things. And last, Christ is the defining element of your life. That's what it means for Christ to be your life. He is the defining element of your life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, Paul got to the point where, you know what? Whatever you see in my life, whatever good you see, it's not me. It's not me. It's Christ. He's living through me. Don't praise me. Praise him. He's the defining element of the believer's life. That's what it means. Christ, who is our life. Now, this Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, and who is completely and fully our life. Right now, he's hidden. Because our life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life is hidden with Christ, and Christ is, in a sense, hidden now. But there is coming a time when Christ will be manifested. He says... When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Now, Christian, I don't know if you often think about seeing Christ in all his glory, but it's, it's a thing worth thinking about. It's part of setting your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And you need, to, you need to work hard, Christian, not to visualize exactly what it's going to look like and what it'll be like, but set your mind on the realities that will be there. Think of it, dear saint. This Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of God, one day will stand, will get up from being seated, and will come up to this earth once again. And will display and manifest himself in all his glory. And this is Christ's desire. That we would see his glory. And this, this is what Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Jesus wants you to see his glory. He wants you to see it in glimpses with the eyes of faith in this life, but he can't wait for you to see it with, the, with your eyes of the body. He longs for that day. And he prays, oh God, if they could just be with me and see me. Oh God, that would fill them with everything that they need. That would make the things of this world but rubbish to them. And isn't that what Paul said? He saw him. He says, 
in our passage, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. So not only will Christ be manifested, you too, Christian. Now notice the contrast. Your life in verse uh, 3 is hidden with Christ. In then verse 4, your life is manifested with Christ. See that? There's this time, this era of the church is a time where this life, this glory of Christ, this glory of eternal life is hidden, but there is coming a time when it will be hidden no longer. And even unbelievers will see the glory of Christ. And when they see the glory of Christ, what will they also see there with him? You. Now, this, now I'm not saying that you're a little mini version of Jesus or you're a little mini God or anything like that. I'm saying that even you, even me, with our fallenness, with our corruption, with our undeservedness, with our sin and our guilt from our past life, even you and me with our failures and, and, and shortcomings, even we, in our human weakness, that weakness will be shed and we will be manifested with Him in glory. It will be manifested for all to see. And so Christian, take great comfort. Your current ridicule and your present rejection from others will become your future honor and glory in Christ. You will trade ridicule for honor and rejection for glory. And this is speaking about our hope as believers in Christ. This is what we hope for. Not wishful thinking, but we know this is going to happen and we wait for it to happen. That's what hope is. Thomas Brooks says, Hope expects and waits patiently for promised good. It doesn't say hope wishes, does it? It expects promised good, and it waits promised good. What's the ultimate promised good? When Christ, who is your life, is manifested, you too will be manifested with Him in glory. You'll be with Him, and the prayers of Christ will be answered. Father, I desire that they see me in my glory. The Father will answer that prayer once and for all. And so in this life, Titus 2 tells us that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are looking to the horizon while we live in this earth. Christian, can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 130, I hope for Yahweh. My soul does hope. And for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Christian Thomas Brooks says, Hope in the promises of God will keep the head from aching and the heart from breaking. Hope exercised upon the promise brings heaven down to the heart. So Christian... You don't need to wait for Christ to come for you to see him and enjoy him. For you to live this fulfilled and blessed life. Yes, it will be glorious and it will be unlike anything we've known. But you can have much of it now. So keep seeking the things above. And set your mind on the things above. Where Christ is seated At the right hand of God. Because there is coming a day. When he will get up from being seated. And will come for his own. And when he does that. Dear sinner. If you don't know him. The way we do. The way I do. As your personal Lord and Savior. He's coming. But he's also coming as judge. Verse 4. 
and all the sins that you've done against him, he's going to make right by judging you. But today is a day of salvation. Today is a day where it says, kiss the son. Come to him now. While it's still a time of forgiveness. While there's still an opportunity for you to find mercy and grace. Because there is coming a day when he will get up. And he will bear his sword in his right hand. And he will tread upon the wicked as one treads the winepress. And he will soak his garments in the blood of the wicked. And he will make all wrong including what's been going on this past week across the globe. He'll make all wrongs right. And all justice will be perfect. Stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you for giving us just a a glimpse, a taste Oh Lord, we, we want more of Christ, so we pray that you would give us more and more of Christ as each day goes on. Help us to see him more, to, to know him more, to, to, to love him more, to live for him more. Oh God, may, may we be defined by him. May this be a church that's defined by Jesus. May our lives be lives that are just defined by him. You want to know what Jesus looks like, you look to us, you look to the church. Not perfect, but if there's going to be any glimpse of him, it's going to be here. Oh God, use us to be a light in this world. Show your glory through us and save the lost. And help us to wait faithfully on your return, Lord Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing.